welcome. Uh, as a, I'm Betty Miles, the co-chair of the Children's Book Committee of the Authors Guild. And speaking for myself and Stephen Kroll, who's on the panel and is the chair of Penn Children's Book Committee, I want to welcome all of you to this long-awaited joint event. Uh, before we introduce our moderator and the panel, I'd like to ask Ellen Levine to speak very briefly about breaking news events today in the censorship uh, field. Hi. As um, I've got one, thanks. As authors and illustrators, we certainly are all concerned about and certainly should be concerned about censorship, which we know is happening all over the country. But it's happening right now in our own backyard. In Queens, some of you may have either heard it on the radio, seen uh, Newsday, had a, uh, a big piece on it yesterday, and the headline was slamming multicultural books. A school board member in the school district the school district that is the one that spearheaded the drive against the rainbow curriculum. A board member, Frank Borzellieri, is opposed to what he calls multicultural books, calling them un-American. He called uh, a biography of Martin Luther King, he talked about Martin Luther King as a leftist hoodlum. One of the books that he's attacked is, it happens to be a book of mine called I Hate English, about a young uh, Chinese immigrant girls struggling to learn the language and, uh, and adapt. And this is un-American because we're coddling immigrants. At any rate, the board meeting is tomorrow night in Queens where he is bringing up a, a list of books that he wants banned. Um, a group of publishers and authors and illustrators uh, are, are trying to organize to go out there and encouraging everybody to make an appearance. This is not just an issue for that particular Queens district. This is an issue for keeping the minds of our children open. Uh, and this is a board member doing this. And he's doing it on the anniversary of all of the terrible ironies of Brown v. Board of Education, which was a Supreme Court case the desegregation school case saying that we're all part of America and here's a man who's saying it's my America, not your America. The address meeting tomorrow night is at 8 o'clock. It's at PS19, which is at 99th Street and Roosevelt Avenue in Queens. And I've been told I'm not a Queens person and um, I tend to think I need a passport when I go to Brooklyn and Queens, but I'm told that this is not far from a subway stop. Um, also, some people I know are getting together uh, from Manhattan to take taxis and car services because it would be cheap that way. Anybody who wants to come, it's open to the public, is more than welcome, and we encourage everybody to come. Yes, there are flyers on the table. Yes, there are flyers on the table in the back. Uh, the main article was in yesterday's Newsday. Today has a follow-up article, and... Um, Putnam, uh, was it Putnam or was it just, it was uh, Putnam has been generous enough to Xerox a pile of today's article in Newsday and they're sitting in the back uh, for anybody who's interested. Thanks, Ellen. Uh, I want to thank the people who helped to plan this panel, who are Pat Cummings, Ellen Levine, Nancy Winslow Parker, Stephen Kroll, and Carol Snyder, who's serving as the moderator. I'm going to introduce Carol, and then she will introduce the other members of the panel. Carol Snyder is a member of both Penn and the Authors Guild. 
She's the author of more than a dozen books for a range of ages of children, from young children to young adults, including the Ike and Mama series, which draws on her own family's memories for her stories of Jewish life in around 1918 in the Bronx. She's published novels and short stories, and her picture book, God Must Like Cookies Too, is just out, to be followed by three more picture books now in production. Her work has received lots of awards, including the Jewish Library's Book Award and the IRA CBC Children's Choice Award. She's served as a judge for the Jewish Book Awards for picture books. Carol Snyder lectures widely in schools and libraries and is cur currently continuing studies in illustration at Parsons School of Design. Carol. Thank you, Betty. Thank you, Betty, and welcome all of you today. Uh, we're delighted to see the room filled, and we have a wonderful panel of experts here for you today, uh, who I will introduce just shortly. We did want to see, can, first I just want to make sure that you can hear me. Is this, is this working correctly? You need it closer? Okay. Better? Not. Better? Okay, how's this? All right. When I speak to groups, whether they're adults or children, I can always count on being asked three questions. One, where do you get your ideas? Two, as a small first grader in Ohio phrased it, how much do your books gross after taxes? <laughs> His father must have been an accountant. And three, the most often asked questions, do you decide who will illustrate your books? As far as choosing illustrators goes, I tell the following story. My first two books in the Ike and Mama series were out when I attended a children's book conference at Rutgers University. And seated next to me in the audience was a very nice gentleman. We smiled politely at each other and sat silently waiting for the program to begin. At that point, another author entered the room who happened to know both of us, and she looked at us, and she said, you two should know each other. You've been working together for years. And that's how I met Charles Robinson, the wonderful artist who illustrated my five Ike and Mama books. We were so happy to meet each other and express what we'd said in letters or notes, how much we respected and loved each other's work. We found out that we lived one town away, and subsequently, Charlie and his wife, Cynthia, had dinner with my family, and my husband and I spent a wonderful evening at dinner at his house. The best part was a tour of his studio, and there on his walls were all of my characters. And a large painting, still wet, was on the easel, and it was a scene that I thought only I had seen in my mind. Charlie was working on the cover of Ike and Mama and the Seven Surprises, and I loved it. He even asked my opinion on the choice of colors, red or green, for the blanket draped on Papa's lap. I chose green because red blankets can mean an emergency on a hospital ship, and this was not the case. Charlie agreed. How do you see the pictures that are in my mind? I asked him with admiration. You write visually, he answered. The pictures are in your words. I treasure that memory. I think that opportunity to talk together inspired both of us. 
Today's program, Authors and Illustrators, A Dialogue at Last, grew out of a discussion of writers at Penn and the Authors Guild. Uh, the aim of this presentation will be to address the communication or lack thereof between authors and illustrators, the role of editors and art directors in promoting this collaboration or separation of illustrators and writers. We want to create an atmosphere of mutual respect here today, an opportunity to talk to each other, solve problems, and inspire each other. I welcome our distinguished panel, Stephen Kroll, who is an author, Bruce Deegan, an illustrator, Richard Agelsky, an illustrator, Dorothy Briley, editor at Clarion Books, and Ava Weiss, art director at Green Willow. Um, I'll give a more extensive bio prior to each guest's opening statement. Briefly, the, the plan for this panel today, after their five to seven minute statements, our panelists will be given an opportunity to uh, react to each other's uh, statements, and I will direct a couple of focusing questions to the panel before opening the program up to the audience, followed by some brief closing statements. We're starting with Stephen Kroll. We also, before we started, I thought it would be a really good idea to get an idea of the audience for our panelists to know who they're talking with. Uh, how many of you here today are authors? How many of you are authors of picture books? How many of you are author illustrators? And how many are illustrators? And how many are from the publishing field? And how many are guests, interested guests? Thank you. You are all very, very welcome. And now, Stephen, let me introduce you. Stephen Kroll has authored over 70 books for children. He's a New Yorker who graduated from Harvard with a degree in history and literature. In addition to writing books, he reviews and contributes to publications such as the New York Times Book Review. <clears throat> he is chairman of the Children's Book Authors Committee at Penn. Some of his best known titles are The Biggest Pumpkin Ever and Oh, What a Thanksgiving. One of his newest books is I'm George Washington and You're Not. Welcome, Stephen Kroll. Well, thank you, Carol, for that lovely introduction, and thank you all for that welcome. I think what I'm going to say in, in some respects is going to echo what Carol has just said, but um, I, am, I am here wearing several hats today. Uh, first, of course, uh, there is my own. Uh, as an author of a great number of picture books, I don't have the problem that we are going to be discussing here today. Uh, when I have finished a manuscript and it is ready for publication, uh, my editor and I always choose the artist together. Uh, that means that one of us or the other of us uh, will come up with a suggestion and one or the other of us will approve that suggestion. Uh, when you are choosing an artist of, in this way and see the pictures in your head as clearly uh, as 
my editor, and I work with several, and I always do, uh, you are looking for an artist with a certain, with a particular style. Um, we make the choice, uh, and the editor uh, then uh, sets about uh, making the overtures to the artist. Assuming the artist says yes, and that isn't always the case, uh, we then move forward. If not, we go, if the artist says no, we then go to a second choice. Uh, then, once the artist has said yes, uh, there is, of course, a dummy, and there is finished art. I get to see both the dummy and the finished art, and I get to make uh, criticisms of that art. Uh, those criticisms, uh, however, are confined always, in my mind, uh, to matters of accuracy, uh, what might or might not be a mistake uh, in the artist's work. The, my comments have nothing to do with the style uh, of the art or the interpretation uh, of my text. Uh, that is, I feel, the artist's prerogative. And if you have chosen correctly, as I was saying before, and the chemistry is as right as it should be, the pictures you get from the artist are the, are the pictures that you see in your head. The changes that I wish to have made, I do not communicate to the artist myself. I communicate them to the editor. The editor is then in touch with the artist uh, and serves as an intermediary uh, for whatever uh, changes need to be made. Uh, I find this, this kind of uh, association works extremely well. Very often I know the artists I am working with at this point. Even when I know them, I do not get in touch with them myself about what changes I, I would like to have made. That, I feel, would somehow create difficulties. I like the idea of having the editor serve as an intermediary. Uh, this does not mean uh, that authors and artists should not, as a general rule, meet. I think that ought to be up to the authors and artists themselves and the situation as it develops. Uh, somehow, all of this works very well for me. Uh, and I'll get back to my own situation and some specific examples in a moment. Uh, other hats that I am wearing today, though, are those of, of the authors, some of whom are probably represented here, uh, who don't uh, share in this process, as I do, who feel very strongly as I think they should feel strongly, that they should share in the process of selecting an artist and reviewing the art when it comes in. If the author does have an idea of who the artist might be for his or her book, why not allow that author at least to make that suggestion? Why not? when the author knows his or her story so well, allow that author to participate in some way in going over the art 
when it needs to be reviewed for accuracy. Artists do make mistakes. Authors, I've discovered, very often are more likely to find those mistakes than an editor or art director is likely to. Well, publishers will say that you can't bring the author and the artist together, that if, they, if you do, they will fight. Uh, the publisher, publishers will also say that unless it's really a good idea, uh, you don't want to allow authors into this process because authors can be unreasonable. Um, perhaps they're not very visual and will cause delays uh, uh, for the production department. Well, none of this, it seems to me, adds up unless, of course, you have an author who misbehaves in so dreadful a, man a manner that the book cannot possibly be produced as a result. I think that every author when beginning to work in picture books with a publisher, at the very least, at the outset, should be allowed to participate in the process in, in the way that I've described for myself. If, for some reason, this does not work out, if the author does misbehave in terrible and indescribable ways, then, all right, the next time around, uh, you don't. Uh, include such an author. But because the kind of involvement that I've described tends, it seems to me, to make for a better book, it's hard for me to understand why authors, assuming they are looking at, at pictures for accuracy, assuming they know something of what they are talking about, why they should not be included in the process because creating a picture book is a process. It is as much of a process as the creation of any work of art. And in this case, when the author and the artist are different people, you have a process that involves both those people. Now, however, I'm going to say something that, that some people are probably not going to like and may even object to. And this is something that I think needs to be worked out for everyone concerned. It seems to me that if you regard creating a picture book as a process, the manuscript cannot be considered sacrosanct. That if the author gets to say something about the art, very often there really isn't a reason why the artist should not be allowed to say something about the text. This doesn't mean that the artist's suggestion should be taken as a given, or when it comes to the art, that the author's suggestions should be taken as a given. Very often, it seems to me, in the process of creating a better book, there is something that might be improved uh, on both sides. And in this case, the author should be as open to possible changes in a text as an artist should be open to possible changes in the art. One can very often bail out the other. A couple of examples from works of my own. 
first a kind of happy example uh, that doesn't really involve um, any of what I'm describing. Uh, this is a, a book of mine uh, called Looking for Daniela. It was illustrated by Anita LaBell. Uh, this book came about in a way that's quite different from the way picture books usually come about. It began with a sketchbook of Anita's, a sketchbook that was all of all about this particular 18th century Italian clown. Anita showed me the sketchbook and asked me if I could do a story in some way based on those pictures. I fell in love with the pictures, of course, and I, I did write this story based on them. I then showed the manuscript to Anita. We did not have a publisher for it yet. I showed the manuscript to Anita, who made some suggestions for changes. Uh, I went and made those changes before we showed the manuscript to Holiday House with Anita, Anita as the committed artist. Uh, once the dummy was done, I saw it first, even before the publisher did, made a couple of suggestions that Anita then made changes in the art as a result of. Finally, we got to the finished art, which I also saw before the publisher did. By then, the book was so beautiful, there couldn't possibly have been a change uh, made in it of any kind, and that was all I had to say. We, it was a total collaboration, and a collaboration that began, of course, with a friendship. This is another book of mine called Queen of the May. Uh, the book is illustrated by Patience Brewster. Uh, it was also published by Holiday House. Uh, when both Marjorie Kyler, my editor in Holiday House, and I agreed that Patience, who had illustrated another book of mine, Princess Abigail and the Wonderful Hat, should be the artist for Queen of the May. Uh, when Patience delivered the dummy for the book, um, Marjorie and I both realized that there was something wrong with the way the dummy had turned out. Uh, what we realized was that the reason there was something wrong with the dummy was that there was something wrong with the manuscript. We went back and worked on the manuscript some more, gave it back to patients who agreed to redo about two-thirds of the dummy as a result of the changes I had made. We finally had a dummy that we liked, but there was still something wrong about the ending, something that patients couldn't quite handle. Uh, we had decided that there should be a rather um, graphic and dramatic uh, ending uh, to go along with, uh, with endings that, that you frequently find in traditional uh, fairy tales. Uh, for patients, the ending remained too violent uh, through about three different drafts. Finally, in the fourth draft, uh, I realized that the way to resolve the violence in the ending uh, was to have the wicked stepmother and wicked stepsister not uh, bitten to death by the crow who was one of the heroes of the story, but instead chased by the crow forever after. Well, this was an ending that Patience could live with, and she did the picture accordingly.
uh, we went through all these different drafts in the interest of a better book, and I think that's what we came out with. One more example, a book of mine called The Big Bunny and the Magic Show, which was a sequel to a book of mine called The Big Bunny and the Easter Eggs. Both books were illustrated by Janet Stevens. Uh, because we had a time problem, and because Janet had illustrated the first book, when it came time to do the second book, we allowed Janet to do finished art without doing a dummy. Well, what happened was that Janet missed a transition in the story. Uh, in the story, uh, Wilbur, this giant Easter bunny, decides he's going to be a magic show bunny instead of the Easter bunny, and he joins a magician and his show. Well, his four bunny, bunny friends go in pursuit of him, trying to get him back, and they are shown on bicycles going to the next town where they're going to find Wilbur and the magician. The transition that was missed was the bunnies arriving at the theater where they believe Wilbur and Morgan the magician are going to be performing. There was no way of changing the art. We would have had to have redone all, yes? Is there a green Jeep owner in this room? Okay, I'll just finish up now then. Well, obviously not an author or an illustrator. There was no way of changing the art without completely redoing half the book. So what I did was incorporate into the dialogue that these four bunnies speak a mention of what is going to happen. There is a theater in the next town, said Francine. I bet Wilbur and Morgan will be there, said Charles. The problem was solved. We were able to use the art as it stood. So these are just examples of ways in which authors and artists can help one another and the way in which I think these relationships ought to work. Thank you. Cole. He's illustrated more than 30 books. One evening when I was a recently published author illustrator, I was covering a class uh, in writing and illustrating children's books uh, for Barbara Botner at Parsons. Um, at the end of the session, a woman who had sat with eyes like glowing coals grabbed the sleeve of, sleeve of my raincoat like the ancient mariner and asked, why do children's book illustrators destroy works of authors? <laughs> she said she had signed up for this class though she didn't draw just to find out what could be going through their minds because her two books had been ruined by illustrators. 35 minutes later, I realized I would either have to do something violent to break her grasp so I could go home or I could promise to atone for the sins of my colleagues forevermore. 
So I lied, and I promised always to be humbly mindful of the author. <laughs> I imagine that many authors feel like this, but um, an illustrated children's book, in my mind, is a collaborative effort. The author is like a screenwriter who may or may not have a word to say about the casting, costume, scenery, lighting, timing, acting, directing, etc. What they see in their mind's eye may be quite different from the actual outcome. I hope that my authors are pleased with, as uh, they say they are, in any case there haven't been any death threats yet. <laughs> okay, um, well I feel lucky to have worked with such generous and collegial authors as Joanna Cole, Nancy White Kostrom, and Jane Yolen. I didn't know Joanna Cole when I was asked to look at her first dummy uh, by Scholastic. This seemed to be such a complex project that it was deemed absolutely necessary for us to meet early on in conference. And the magic school bus books require so much conferring and redoing that we have not only developed a great back and forth working relationship, we have also become good friends. We both even moved out of New York to the same small town in Connecticut. There have been few real problems between us because even though I carp at having to redo and redo, Joanna's concern is to do the best and make it the clearest and tell the most truth. Sometimes she will write it one way, I'll dummy it up, and uh, she and Phoebe Yeh, our editor, <laughs> who's here, uh, can see what works and what doesn't work and make changes. Then I'll dummy the changes, then they'll say the changes don't work. Let's go back to the first way, but with a different change. So I do it again. The Magic School Bus Dinosaur Book, which I just got the first bound copy of this week, um, it feels almost like a paleontological dig because if you look at the dummy, you can peel up each layer of time. You know, we got to the point that there were so many redos that I taped one over the other so I know which was one, two, three, and it's like, you know, four or five layers deep in places. Um, Nancy White Kostrom and I did three Jesse Beer books before we actually met. Yet, she would look over the illustrations and pull out something to write a poem about in the next book. One evening, she came down from Alaska, and we had dinner in New York, and we discussed places Jesse Bear could go and what he could do, and she returned to Fairbanks and wrote three new books, which very quickly, I don't know, there's very short days in, in Alaska. <laughs> she says that, you know, when it's 40 below, she gets a lot of writing done. Um, and we just, you know, signed a three-book contract with Macmillan, and, uh, you know, um, I lost my place. Um, and she doesn't mind me suggesting text changes. There are some places where I feel that something isn't moving along right, and I occasionally do that. Um, during the recent chaos and bloodletting at Macmillan, it became more efficient for us to fax each other directly, which we did, and uh, she rewrote some uh, pages, and uh, it was a lot easier doing it that way. Um, and after so many books, we feel like we're Jesse Bear's family, and I wonder if we're going to help him select a college later on. <laughs> okay, everybody knows uh, Jane Yolen. Uh, she's brilliant and prolific, and we've done six Commander Toad books and Dinosaur Dances and Mouse's Birthday. Once I wrote uh, Disasteroid, Disasteroid, <laughs> on a screen in a Commander Toad uh, illustration, uh, you know, it was on a computer screen. And she made it the title of the next book, Commander Toad and the Disasteroid, which was nice. Um, 
But one of the problems with working with a writer um, who has such fun with language is that the editors love the language and uh, the artist has to actually puzzle out what to do with this language. For example, in Mouse's birthday it says, Mouse's house is very small, very small, very small. Hardly any room at all for anyone but Mouse. My editor is here, she's cringing back there. Um, in comes Cat upon his knees carrying a gift of cheese, trying very hard to squeeze into Mouse's house. In comes Dog upon his knees carrying a pot of teas, trying very hard to squeeze into Mouse's house. Cow, horse, farmer all come in in turn, and each manages to squeeze in and get into the house. Finally, Mouse blows out the candles on the birthday cake, the whole house blows away, and then the last stanza says, Mouse's new house is very wide, very wide, very wide. Everyone can fit inside, including little Mouse. You know, it was really delightful to read this, but what does it look like? <laughs> what kind of house can stretch to accommodate all the characters and then be blown away and then be replaced by a very big house to accommodate everyone? I tried all kinds of things, including a house made of rubber that blows up like a balloon, and I dummied the whole story up that way, and it didn't work. So I, I, I decided to do something I, I'm careful about. I, I, I didn't want to admit I didn't understand what to do with this. But I asked Refna Wilkin, what does this mean? <laughs> what is this? And uh, she said she didn't know. <laughs> and she asked the art director. Uh, she didn't know. So they asked Jane, who said, I only take the responsibility for writing these things. <laughs> you figure it out. So. Um, I couldn't believe it. They actually had sent me a manuscript. They didn't understand what was going on in the manuscript. And I had to figure out what was going on. So um, I do what I always, you know, did what I always do, which is I asked my wife, who <laughs> saved my life yet again. And she's the one who came up with the idea that Mouse lives in a very tiny woven straw house. And then as people come in, they just push the straw apart, and the house gets bigger and bigger, and you can blow it away. And then I decided to put the house in the corner of you know, the hayloft, in the barn, so that when the straw blows away, you can see they're in the barn, and they finish with a big barn dance. And that's how it ended. <laughs> <laughs> so in ending, I'd like to say that um, I've, I've only had cordial relations with authors. The others are silent. <laughs> so. Um, if anybody uh, has despised the illustrations, they've refrained from communicating it or uh, by word or physical intimidation. <laughs> and this may be a fool's paradise, but I believe that cordial relations between author and artist are possible. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, our next panelist, Richard Agelski, began his art training at the High School of Art and Design in New York City. From there, he went on to Pratt Institute and Parsons School of Design, where he studied with Maurice Sendek. His first published picture book was Sid and Saul, written by Arthur Yorinks, published in 1977. Richard and Arthur went on to collaborate on eight picture books, including Hey Al, which won the 1987 Caldecott Medal. Although still friends, Richard has now branched out to illustrating other books as well. He is well known for The Tub People, written by Pam Conrad in 1989. Welcome, Richard Agelski.
thank you very much. Can you hear me now? Um, my career began um, with Arthur Eurings. I had been studying illustration at Parsons School of Design with Marie Sendak. And uh, when I came out of school, I had a portfolio of drawings that I was taking around, and I wanted to illustrate picture books. And this was the mid-70s. And when I would take my portfolio around to various publishers, a lot of editors told me that my work was not appropriate for picture books, for children's books. That my work was too dark, my people were too weird, my pictures were too heavy, and my style was too sophisticated for children's books. But I really wanted to work on children's books. So I illustrated several uh, middle reader books, and I did uh, jacket illustrations, but I wasn't getting any picture books. And uh, one day I was going back to visit Maurice at Parsons to complain to him about my lack of luck in being able to land a picture book. And luckily that time I met Arthur Eurinks at that, that day um, in the elevator at Parsons School of Design. And how this came about was that Arthur Eurinks was taking his stories around to publishers. And publishers were telling him that his stories were too weird, they were too dark, and they were not going to make good picture books. So he had showed, uh, he had been friends with Sendak and he uh, showed him his stories and, and Maurice said to Arthur, you know, I had this student last year who would be perfect for your books, but um, I can't remember his last name, some long name, and, uh, but his first name is Richard and he described me to Arthur. And uh, Arthur didn't think that this would, information was of any use. But luckily that day when I was going back to, to Maurice to visit Maurice, an author just happened to be there and he recognized me from Maurice's description and tapped me on the shoulder and asked me if I was Richard. And I said yes. And he showed me his stories and we began working together. Um, so we did a dummy of our first book, Sit and Solve. And uh, we, we, we dropped it off at a publishing house and it sat there and it sat there for a while. Um, and the editors came back and they didn't like the book and we were going to try another house. So um, Arthur was going to bring it to another house, but at this point I thought, well, maybe it's the pictures. Maybe I really loved Arthur's story and I figured, well, maybe you could sell the story and maybe the one another illustrator. So he took this, uh, the manuscript for Sid and Sal to an editor who looked it over and called them up and said, you know, um, I met an illustrator a year ago who would be just perfect for this book. Uh, his name is Richard Gelsky. And Arthur said, well, sit down, Michael, the dummy's done. And he says, what do you mean the dummy's done? How could the dummy possibly done? He said uh, that he had met me and we put together this dummy and we sold it and that was our first book. Um, we had a, a very good working relationship that, and it has a lot to do with chemistry. I think I would not have done such a good job illustrating Arthur's texts if I didn't really feel for these texts. And one of the things that Arthur, the way Arthur writes that was so good for me was that he didn't put a lot of description into his texts. He would keep them very sparse and very clean and very simple and he left a whole lot of room for me to, to invent things and to come up with ideas. He never described the colors of things. Uh, in Hey Al, he says, Al, a nice guy, a janitor. <laughs> That's the description, um, which gave me a lot of room, obviously. Um, and we had this working, this way of working where he would send me a story and I would start doing a storyboard for it. And I would get to a certain point and then I would send it back to him. 
and he would change things in the story based on what I did in my storyboard. I would then make changes in my storyboard based on what he changed in his text. And we'd just send the work back and forth like that. I wouldn't say, I have a problem here, because he could see where the problem was. If a picture was boring, well, maybe something unexciting is happening, isn't happening here in the text. And uh, one of the things that I feel about picture books, uh, I do kind of feel, though, that um, the way they say a direct, that, that films are a director's medium, in a way I can't help but feel, especially a picture book per se, is really, to me, an illustrator's medium. Because it's not just putting pictures and text. It's the size of the book. Is it horizontal? Is it vertical? Why is it horizontal? Why is it vertical? What kind of pictures? How much space around the pictures? Should they be bleed? Where's the spreads? How, many, how should they be laid out? Um, when I did Hey Al, and we came up with the idea of the two different colored end papers, um, Arthur just loved everything we've done, and he's never had a problem with anything. But um, I just feel that the illustrator is in has so much to do that you can't really tie their hands. Uh, when I, I get a lot of text sent to me in the mail, and if I see a lot of descriptions, I don't usually take those stories. If I get a text with illustrator's notes, I don't even read the stories. Um, uh, I feel that... Um, I, got my tr I lost my train of thought here for a second, but um, um, in, in, in illustrating picture books, it's such a weird blending of words and text and words and pictures do things that words don't do, and you let the words do what the words do, and you let the pictures do what the pictures do, that I think that the artist really needs quite a bit of room to be able to do all of this stuff. Like I said, it's, it's, it's a lot of things. It's not just the picture and text. I like a book. I like the feel of a book. I like the, the feel of the pages. I like the colors of a book. I like the smell of a book. It's a physical thing. And, and for me, to illustrate a picture book, it's, I take all the pictures together, and it's really one piece. It's not 20 illustrations to me. It's always just one piece. Now, I've worked with other authors. I've worked with Pam Conrad, and we've done many books together, but her books are a little different, and her books are the type, they don't allow me that real interplay of words and pictures that I got in author's text. She writes, her texts are longer, there's more uh, descriptions uh, in them, and it's just a different type of book. And again, she's always liked my pictures and never really had a problem with, with anything we, we've done. Um, so, yeah, I've had very good relationships with her, and I've, I've illustrated several novels with Miriam Chaikin and had a good time with her. I've had one problem with an author, and it wasn't even a picture book, it was a, an, an illustrated novel. And what happened was, um, this was just going to be a novel with a jacket, and at the last minute they thought that they would add uh, a couple of illustrations on the inside. and. Um, so the editor came to me and she said that we need these pictures and we don't have a lot of time and can you do some sketches if you like it and uh, it has to be done within a few weeks. So I did these sketches and I received in the mail this letter from this author. The letter was like this, 
<laughs> and he had Xeroxes and circles around things and long descriptions of everything that he wanted. Um, see, he just didn't see the text the way I saw. Well, he wasn't open to my interpretation of his text. And I feel that the, maybe the editor didn't show him enough of my work. Maybe he wasn't familiar enough with my work. But I feel that people who want me to illustrate their work really have to be open to my interpretations. But I do feel that when you pick something, you usually pick something in if you like it. I think that that proves that there is some sort of chemistry there because I do pick it out of the text. Now, I do lots of things with picture books. Um, I invent things. In, in another one of the books I did with Arthur Yorings, a book called Oh Brother, the story begins that it was a sorry accident at sea that caused Milton and Morris to be orphaned. But he doesn't say what that accident was. So um, I thought, gee, I could do anything I want here. So through the opening of the book, I have them go, they're on this ship coming to America, and I have them go down into the hold of this ship, and these boys are always fighting, and they break into this room where there are all these fireworks, and the two brothers start fighting over this one rocket, and in, and, in, in, while they're fighting there, they knock over a lantern which falls into the fireworks and blows up the ship, which gave me my, that was just my, my interpretation of, of the things in his text. And that was the, that's the, to me, that's the fun of a picture book, because it is, it's such a weird blending of words and text that pictures do things, then words pick up things, then pictures pick up again, and uh, that is really sort of the fun and, the, and to me, the artistry of, of, um, of making picture books. Thank you, Richard. Our next panelist, Dorothy Briley, began her children's book career in 1962 when she joined the staff of Viking Junior Books. <clears throat> she has since been editor-in-chief of children's books and vice president of J.B. Lippincott Company, editor-in-chief of children's books at Lothrop Lee and Shepherd, and vice president of the William Morrow Company, and is currently editor-in-chief and publisher of Clarion Books and vice president of the Houghton Mifflin Trade and Reference Division. She describes herself as a hands-on editor who much prefers using CalPath technology over anything offered by the Info Highway. A longtime supporter of the International Board on Books for Young People, she served four years on IBI's executive committee and was president of the United States Board on Books for Young People in 1992. She has also served as president of the Children's Book Council and is currently on the CBC-ABA Joint Committee. I've had the privilege of working with Dorothy and am pleased to welcome Dorothy Briley. As we have seen, there have been several highly successful collaborations between authors and illustrators in the long history of children's book publishing. Here. Just put it down a little bit, maybe. And then talk into it. Uh, oh. Is that now? Thanks. To repeat, as we've seen, 
already, there have been several highly successful collaborations between authors and illustrators in the long history of children's book publishing. One such is vividly described by Maurice Sendak in the current issue, the May-June 1994 issue of the Horn Book, and that is of his relationship with Ruth Krauss, with whom he collaborated on several books that are now considered classic. A hole is to dig. Sorry. <laughs> Maurice says, quote, Ruth wasn't so patient or quiet, and she could frighten me with her stormy tirades. It was hard for such a fiercely liberated woman to contend with a potentially talented but hopelessly middle-class kid. In the end, she slapped me into shape, almost literally. <laughs> when Ruth approved of the sketch, I was rewarded with the pleasure of her deep belly laugh, which rose upward and exploded in little girl giggles. But her disapproval could be devastating. And then he goes on to describe a screaming fit that sent him panic-stricken, off to make some very hasty changes. Now, in every publisher's contract is a clause similar to the following. The publisher will publish the work at its own expense and shall determine the style and manner of publication including design, form, printing, production, price, sale, promotion, etc., etc., etc. These decisions shall be based solely on the publisher's own experience and judgment and will reflect its business decisions made in good faith. Now, it's my job to take these words seriously. If a book fails because of poor decision-making in any one of these areas, the responsibility for failure logically rests with me, and I accept that. The question we're addressing tonight about how much authors should, of uh, the text should participate in the illustration and book production process, uh, I have to give my answer is this. Sometimes not at all, sometimes to a minimal degree, sometimes there can be total involvement. In other words, there's more than one way. The decision about when and how much involvement will occur is the publisher's to make and must be based on what the publisher considers is best for the book in progress. The sometimes not at all category usually applies to picture book fiction. Authors can be so close to their work and therefore so possessive of it that they dampen the illustrator's creative vision. Few illustrators benefit, as Maurice Sendak did, from an author's direction during the creative process. Even so, the author may sometimes be involved to a minimal degree if the editor chooses to show the author the illustrator's sketch dummy. When this happens, the editor and or art director decide whether or not any resulting criticism should be communicated to the artist. The total involvement category almost always involves nonfiction, in which concern for factual accuracy and clarity supersede regard for the illustrator's creative inventiveness. 
authors of nonfiction books through research necessary to produce the manuscript in the first place usually have acquired expert knowledge that make them a valuable consultant on visual content. The publisher's concern for accuracy in some nonfiction books is such that an outside expert may be called in to vet both the text and the illustrations. The concern is what is best for the book and personal likes and dislikes of both author and illustrator are secondary considerations. The scenario that Maurice describes about his relationship with Ruth Krauss and her husband Crockett Johnson is precisely what most editors who strive to keep authors and illustrators apart fear will happen. They don't fear the, a successful result, however, not every illustrator is made of the stuff that allowed Maury Sendak to realize the value of the lessons that Ruth Krauss had to teach. And the reverse is also true. Not every author has valuable lessons to teach. The Krauss-Johnson-Sendak combination worked because all parties had something tangible to gain from the other. Their editor, Ursula Nordstrom, knew that and she aided and abetted the collaboration. It all comes down to what is best for the book and if collaboration will make it better, then fine. The editor's decision on this point is often known and if that is the case, the decision should be respected for what it is, a professional judgment based on experience. Dorothy, thank you. We have we have a hand mic if this is easier. I don't think so. Will the hand mic work? Here you go. I don't think so. Just, Why don't we change this first button? Why don't you change places? We'll just change. Just excuse me. Just try the end microphone. I just did. Is it working? I don't think so. Okay. Can you hear me? No. <laughs> Nothing? Yes, no? Okay, listen, you have a double handicap. You got my accent to contend with. No? Now it's gone for a moment. Okay. I think we're going to have to work okay. this one sure. on. Too. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Enter my husband, the engineer. Hello, right on cue. Uh -huh. We're having microphone problems. <laughs> Do none of them work? No. No. Does this one work? This one works. Ava? <laughs> Sorry. You should I was going to say, can you hear me? I was going to say I love being last because they've said everything there is to be said. Now you can be first and last. Now you can be time. first and last. Well, what disturbs me is the idea that there should be any kind of adversary relationship between publisher, author, artist. There shouldn't be. Because we all want the same thing. We want a good book. And 
if that's if that end result is what we want, then, then we should do whatever we need to do to get the best possible book. I will address myself to those few things we haven't you haven't heard yet. For instance, what do I see as the art director's role? I just didn't That's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, I think there are different kinds of art directors. There are some who I think are more like waiters. They take orders, bring them to the kitchen, bring the finished product, get the corrections, bring them back to the kitchen. Well, anyway, that's not the kind of art director I am. I think I am uh, an equal partner because at Green Willow we do a lot of picture books and picture books, I think, are a total marriage and that has been said enough, I don't have to repeat that. I, I have to, in my head, separate the kinds of books we do, because a picture book is a very different animal for, from an illustrated novel or even from an early reader. There are entirely different needs that these books have in graphic terms. If you have a longer text, or if you have a text that speaks about specific things, you have to involve the author. I know nothing about horses. I know nothing about sailboats. There's nobody in our department that does. We need an expert to help us, and the expert is inevitably the author. On the other hand, when you have a picture book manuscript, the very holes that were talked about must be left so an artist can use his imagination and contribute his creativity. I think I, I wrote this down, and I, if I wrote it down wrong, I apologize, but I wrote down that the pictures you see are the pictures you have in your head, and this is a statement made by an author. The author does not say to himself, the pictures that the artist will see will be different pictures, but the artist, after all, sees visually and may, for all I know, see bigger and better flowers. I don't think a writer should draw pictures in his head that much. I think when you have a, a musician who reads lyrics, he hears music. And I think there are lyricists who hear music and see words in their head. And you have to allow the artist to see his own dream world and give him that kind of room. Uh, but we do need the authors desperately to catch mistakes. I mean, that's for real. There is an extraordinary amount of research that goes into these rather simple, seemingly simple picture books. Uh, I'm a brand new grandmother, and my grandchild has a very favorite book written by Fran Manushkin and illustrated. And they're, it's a very contemporary book. And there are strollers, and they've got the two little wheels front and back. I mean, you can't imagine the amount of research that goes into any one single picture. I mean, don't we all know what strollers look like? No, we do not. We've got to look at strollers. We've got to look at whatever it is. You, and when you get into something that has historical background, it's incredible. I don't want to talk about horses. I don't want to talk about how you hold the baseball bat or sailboats or any other things of that nature. The more text there is, that usually the more we are in need of an expert that will check. But I think it's 
it's terribly important for, for writers to have a, the kind of feeling and respect for the artist's role that allows the artist to give to their fullest. Now, um, uh, I, I heard another sentence I, that, 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 or another thought that troubled me greatly. We have at Green Willow very few rules. We hardly have any, but we have some. One of them is that no finished art is started until a dummy is done, approved, thought through, worked through, redone and redone because the dummy in a way is the skeleton underneath the pictures, however cute the squirrels are. If the pacing isn't right, if it doesn't move, if you don't visually get movement into that, that, those words, you really don't have a good picture book. So we will not allow anybody uh, to start a book without thinking through the movement. I don't know how many books we have done that started out with 32 pages and went down to 24 and became better, or went up to 40 and became better, because the, the text, once you put it into page form and you start to turn pages, it, it has its own demands. And it is, it, there's a theatricality, and there is a movement, and there's a rhythm, which you can either squash or you can reinforce it. And you, if, if you can really get into the words and you can see pictures, that's how you make a wonderful book. So that's an absolute must. The other, the second, the second commandment at, at Green Willow is that we will not let an artist start before the text is set in type. Because I think it's rather a no-no to have type disappear in a restless, uneven, too dark, or what have you background. I have two functions. My, the one that's very dear to my heart, which is the creative end, where we work from the very beginning with the, the dummies and with the sizes and you know, the techniques and all that. And the, my other role, and, and I don't want anybody to belittle it, it's a very important role, is that a book is a manufactured product, and nobody has talked about that. And there have actually been some people who have had in their contracts clauses that specified uh, reproduction methods or printers. I don't think this is done anymore. But in the so-called good old days when reproduction techniques were really rather poor, some people guarded themselves, Fran, you, you know who I'm talking about, uh, by saying, but my books have to be color separated in Belgium, what have you. Now, nowadays, the technology is so spectacular that we really can do wonderful work. Uh, it is part of my function to make sure that we get the best separators, the best paper, the best printers. I go to the printer for every printing of every first edition of a picture book. Nothing gets done until my okay is on the first sheet, which is then to be matched for hopefully any further reprints that come up. If we have a reprint that gets moved from one printer to the other, and that happened not too long ago in a very nice way, I found myself going to that new printer because machines are different and work differently so that we put a great deal of care. And when I say we, I think all the major and good publishers do the same. 
a great deal of care into the physical production of the book, into the printing quality. I think we live in a period where we, we do things we never could do before. And uh, that part of it is very exciting. And while I talk about periods, I spent the whole day today fighting with a computer. Uh, this is the other great technological breakthrough that I have lived with. We are rapidly galloping into working, releasing books on discs. One little book, one little disc goes overseas, and it's the whole book, plus the artwork, mind you. And uh, it's just another world. Who knows what we're going to see five years down the road. We can do things now we could never do before. It's not easy, I'll tell you that. But it's very interesting and very exciting. And I think I'm going to stop because if you have any specific questions, I'll be glad to answer them. because we did not introduce her properly due to technical failure. <laughs> Ava Weiss was born in Czechoslovakia but has lived in the United States most of her life. She won a scholarship to Cooper Union. While her two sons were growing up, she freelanced, illustrating about a dozen books. She has taught courses at NYU and Manhattanville College and has chaired and been a member of many juries on book design. She has served on the board of directors of the Children's Book Council. In 1965, Mrs. Weiss became art director for the Macmillan Children's Book Department. In 1974, she was one of the three founders, along with Susan Hirschman and Ada Sheeran of Green Willow Books, a division of William Morrow. In her position there as art director, Mrs. Weiss works closely with artists and supervises the design, production, and printing of their books. She became vice president of William Morrow in 1985. And thank you again, Ava. I thank all our panelists and give them the opportunity now to see if they would like to answer each other in any form or statement very briefly. Just a couple of things. M much as I revere Ava and her work at Green Willow, I, I'd like to c correct a couple of, of, of misconceptions. Uh, I did not say that the pictures you see are the pictures you see in your head. What I said was the pictures you get are the pictures you see in your head. And what I, what I was trying to, to implied by that was that if you have chosen the artist that is right for your book, uh, the pictures that the artist creates are the pictures that you see in your head and don't require, and those pictures don't require uh, any changes. Uh, I would also disagree with Ava in saying that, that, that picture book authors need not be very visual. I think that the, the best picture book authors are uh, authors 
uh, who write visually and therefore think visually. And if you do that, you do see pictures in your head as you write. Or you can't help but do that. And so the choice of the artist becomes that much more important. Um, also, there, there was mention of the fact of, of, I think, my having mentioned a book uh, in which a dummy was not done. Uh, the reason for that, of course, was, was a time consideration. Uh, it was something that we did once. I, I have done more than 50 picture books, and this is the only one for which a dummy was not done. And I, I think it is clear to everyone in this room that ordinarily you would never go without a dummy. Uh, also, I, I would just say one last thing, which is a somewhat quizzical sort of observation on, on my part, which someone else might con confirm or deny. Um, um, much as we have reason to be thankful for both Dorothy's and Ava's work, uh, it, it, it seems to me that there's a lot more fear, fearfulness uh, on the part of the publishers we have listened to than there is on the part of, of either the authors or the illustrators when it comes to collaboration. Uh, all of us seem to be uh, quite ready to, uh, to have at least something uh, to do with one another. Uh, and I guess that's worthy of some more thought. Thank you. Were there any other panelists that wanted to react? Well, I think I would like to react to that last. Maybe I can um, project enough so that you can hear without the microphone. I thought so. I've been Great. to sales conference a couple of times in my life. <laughs> um, I don't think it's that we fear. We have had some experiences and there are little signals that go off. For instance, I right now have a lovely manuscript sitting in my desk that I have bought. And I um, had a visit with the author. This is a first time author. Had a visit with the author shortly after I bought the manuscript and the author brought me a picture of her daughter. The daughter, of course, is the character in the book. And the author would love to meet the illustrator. And I doubt that I'm going to introduce the author to the illustrator. Because I want the illustrator's vision of what this character looks like. I really want that very much. I want an illustrator who will make it up out of his own experience as well as head. Um, Dorothy. There are many different ways to skin a cat and I have worked every way there is. I have a favorite story. I won't name the author but the illustrator was Byron Barton. An enchanting manuscript. Byron loved it, did the art, the book was published and she said they're frogs but they're my children. <laughs> wonderful book. <laughs> I had an interesting experience with uh, Charles Robinson in that he asked, did I have any pictures of my grandmother and could he see them? And, can, and that's nice when that happens. And it was very nice, but I certainly did not expect him to, uh, to use them. I was very surprised oh, yeah. when he did. 
that's very, if it's that kind of history, that's very likely that that will happen. Can I just? Sure, uh, Bruce. Um, one of the stupidest comments I ever got from an author is I did a book in which the author was so thrilled because my two-year-old son, who I took pictures of to use as a model, looked just like her two-year-old son, but my wife didn't look like her. <laughs> so could I change the, the, the mother in the story to look like her? And I said, no. <laughs> um, but, you know, in truth, I think when I mentioned our collegiality, it, it's after we have done several books, you don't know what it's going to be like. And even now, and dare I say this, you know, we always talk about how Joanne and I always uh, work together. Um, we need a referee because she has to bounce her ideas off our editor to see whether she really wants it. One of the most frustrating things I ever did was I, I responded every time she made a change and it wasn't a considered change. So I changed it five times. And there's a reason why there needs to be an intercessor. And, um, you know, our editors, my experience with, with our editors has always, you know, has always been that I, I value their opinions very highly. And, you know, it's never been that someone has said, do this, and it was stupid, you know. Uh, so um, it's been really important to have the publisher between us because what if I did sketches that were just so stupid that they shouldn't have been sent on? You know, they have to come back to me for reconsideration before, and all the sketches do get sent to the artist. But the worst experience I had, and I'm not gonna tell you who this was, was when I used to get, I did one book with somebody who, when we met at a publishing party at ALA, thought, you know, what a great, you know, let's be friends, and used to call me collect and um, tell me what to draw on each page. And I said, look, I, I wasn't standing at your elbow when you were typing, so don't stand by my elbow when I'm drawing, you know. And, and there really does need to be a certain amount of freedom for all of us. And, um, and, and, um, and as I said, and other people said, you know, it's a collaborative effort. By, by the way, one of the things that nobody mentioned was it is very much, I think, a reason why uh, on certainly a large percentage of our books, there's just one name. The artist is the author, because then they have the right to take out the red cap and just draw it for whatever they can add. They, can, they become the totality. Mm -hmm. Uh, my relationship with author, I was lucky in the sense that when the way we worked together, if I showed him some sketches or I showed him a storyboard and it wasn't complete or there was an area that I was having trouble with, I, I, that's the chemistry that we had. He could see where the problem was. I didn't have to say it. And uh, if he didn't like something that I did, he would change something in his text and then I'd see a better text or something, and I'd say, oh, okay. He didn't never said it, but that, I think that's very rare. And I think everybody has an ego. 
and when I work with other authors, um, I will mention something to the editor because I don't want to say something like like the person who called you and telling you what to draw, and then you have to have an argument with them. I don't think that makes for a good working relationship. If I end up in a situation where I'm arguing with the author, um, that just sounds like a nightmare, and I think that's something that should be avoided at all costs. Thank you. Uh, I have a couple of questions that I want to pose and then open this up to the audience who I'm sure has many questions. Uh, these are questions that were compiled by authors um, who were asked uh, what they would like to question if they had the opportunity. Uh, I'm going to ask a long question and then ask that all of you ask short ones. <laughs> Authors are experiencing increasingly long delays in publication of books. Even when contracts specify an 18 month after receipt of manuscript publication date, delays of years often occur because of extensions for delivery of final art or changes within companies. During this time, an author loses speaking engagement funds or misses a baby boom market or loses the timeliness of his or her idea. With understanding of the artist's problems that can arise with process, and the artist's need for overbooking. What can be done to improve this situation, which is frustrating for authors, illustrators, editors, and art directors alike? Anyone brave enough to take that? Sure, I'll answer. <laughs> if we have, if we, no, I can talk. I, I'm, I'm good at hollering. Okay, holler. uh, <laughs> if we, if an, if we think an artist would be just wonderful for manuscript and we call up and they say they can't start for another 18 months or for another two years, we will call the author and we will tell them and we will say we would love to have Kevin Hankies do it and Kevin Hankies will do it indeed. He loves the manuscript so much but he's so tied up. Are you willing to wait? I mean there we will not because I think we are very aware of the fact that uh, until the book is out, nobody makes any money, and people have to pay their rent. Um, other than that, I will say, uh, when we sign up a manuscript, it goes on a list, and I don't think in the last 10 years we have postponed one single book. Our books come out as promised, period. And I, I take great pride in this, because I can only say again, I don't work with artists and with authors, I work with individuals, and many of them are established and are not, you know, are, are fine financially. There are a lot of young people who desperately need the money, and uh, it, you you have to have that 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 sense of responsibility towards people. And uh, our books come out on time, and I don't I don't I have heard horror stories of three and four years, but I can only talk for us. I, I'm hiding. Well, I could add to that. Uh, I'm usually booked about a year before I could start doing sketches for a book. So if someone sends me a manuscript, I'll usually say, well, I can't begin the sketches till next year. Then by the time I do the sketches... Excuse me, I'm just going to have to ask, oh. I've just been informed that if we don't speak into a mic, oh. it's not recorded. Oh, uh-oh. Okay, um, as I was saying, I'm usually booked about a year before, and uh, because I'm working on a project and I have to finish up this project before I can start the next one. And by the time I do the sketches and do all the finishes, that's another year. And then the production seems to take about a year 
before the book comes out. And that's just the way it is. But it's also now become part of my work process. When I'm doing the finishes for one book, I like to have my next book, the manuscript. I like to have it. Because I like to read it after I stop work, and I like to think about it, and I think about it when I'm in the garden, I think about it when I'm doing other things, and I think about it for a year before I start doing the sketches. And I think by the time I really start to put something down on paper, I've really gotten that story. It really has become part of me. And now that's just part of my work process, and that's just the way I do it. And now you know what editors are confronted with when we're looking for illustrators for picture book texts. And one thing I'd like to add to that is that uh, I've heard the word timely, that the, this, this manuscript was so timely that we're going to lose the opportunity while the moment was hot for it. Don't ever send a manuscript so timely that it's about to be published next year to carry on books. If next year is its last moment, this last chance for success, then we have no use for it. First of all, we can't get it out next year because it's going to take 18 months to two years. And like Ava, we tell you if we have a delay, if we're signing up somebody who can't start work for two to three years from now. But um, I'd like to think all the books we have that we publish are going to be of interest to the marketplace for several years after it's published, and that it doesn't really matter as far as interest out there exactly what year the publication is. And sometimes uh, the artist simply takes longer to do the art than was expected. Uh, I've just had a, a perfectly gorgeous picture book published by Scholastic uh, it's called By the Dawn's Early Light. It's the story of the Star Spangled Banner. Uh, it's illustrated uh, with of full color oil paintings. Uh, it came out about a, it's just come out, it came out, it has come out about a year later than expected. Uh, but the reason is that the artist took an extraordinarily long time doing these incredible paintings. Uh, the book is fabulous. Uh, I think the art will help it sell uh, an awful lot more copies. Uh, it was worth the wait. I think it frequently is worth the wait, and uh, definitely ideas last for long, long times. Uh, I think the many of the uh, authors that wrote in to ask this question had many more than two, three years in mind, and, uh, and, would be very, and we're very happy to wait for, for different artists or to try different things, and it's through nobody's fault that these things occur. It's just a, question, uh, a posed question as to what can be done to make it a less frustrating experience. I, I would not say that it is not necessarily nobody's fault. I would say that in the very recent past, uh, in many houses, the lists have been cut back, exactly. which means that if you had 25 books and you had to cut five, you move them to the next list, and then from the next list, 10 books go to the next list, and then et cetera. And the person that happens to get caught up in this uh, ends up waiting much longer than expected. Uh, I, 
my own personal feelings are very negative about that. You know, I mean, we don't do it, but mm -hmm. uh, when when major corporations, mm -hmm. pardon. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, when major corporations step into the picture and they look at the bottom line, they make decisions which are not necessarily creative decisions. Thank you very much. We have very anxious people in our audience to ask some questions who've been very, very patient. Uh, I'd like to at this time open up, hoping that microphones will work so that you will be recorded. Um, and feel free to... <coughs> Is that working? I don't know. It doesn't. working microphone by now <laughs> and I will just repeat the question if I can hear it can you briefly just restate that question Okay. Neither the art director nor the editor know very much about. And the author does, and there are two areas especially, uh, and that is ethnic stories, folk tales, and the second one is nonfiction, scientific books for small children, picture books or whatever they may be. Now, I think that it's tremendously important to bring the author into the, uh, into the process. For instance, I've been working with Russian material and with material of many, many, many peoples of the former Soviet Union and of today's uh, Russia. I have a mass of materials that I could supply to the artist. I would not expect the artist to do a, uh, a, uh, a literal rendition but you do, not, you do not dress, let's say, Eskimos in Japanese clothes and put them in Japanese houses or in whatever it is, or a Japanese living in an igloo. You cannot do that, and it's happened a number of times with me, and it is tremendously upsetting. I would like to, to uh, cite just a few examples of what I had inflicted in my books. There were cows without udders. Cows without udders. Without udders. There was a pagan divinity, a master of the waters, 
who was dressed in a coat of mail with a cross on his back for all the world like a crusader knight. Now, I had an old Russian peasant grandma in an ancient folktale presented with a fluffed up hairdo, a miniskirt, and striped stockings. I, I had a small village of centuries ago which the illustrator equipped with a wide paved square surrounded with tall Gothic buildings. Now that is not imagination. It is simply an offense. Then a church with a cupola with a smoking chimney. Did anybody ever see a church with a smoking chimney? A nomad's tent with a heavy oak door. A wheat field set right next to a field of tulips. There are no tulip fields in Russia, but the illustrator managed to transport Holland, all of it, into the wheat-producing Russian heartland. Now, what are we to feel and how are we to react to such mayhem inflicted on our work and on the innocent reader and on the children? I'd like an answer. Thank you for your question. Well, I'll respond to that. I couldn't agree with Mira more. She has every right to feel exactly as she felt and she should have been consulted. One of the responsibilities of the editor and the art director, everybody else on the staff, is to understand what they do not know and to take the appropriate steps to ensure the accuracy of the entire work. And um, sometimes it's just a matter of sending body. The author needs to see it. I couldn't agree with you more, Mira. Thank you. I think we are all in agreement with that. It's a very huge problem that, that exists for both authors and artists. I don't think artists like to have errors in their books either. We, we all want them caught. Um, we appreciate the question. Yes? Uh, I would like to know, since things have changed, I'll ask uh, in the last five years, it won't be recorded. Just. I agree that in the last five years, we don't have color separations to worry about as much. We have good paper and printing and so on. And the next five years is really right upon us because we're doing CD-ROMs, we're into new media and so on. Question, if you have an author illustrator who is a contemporary young person who's computer literate and knows how to do digitized work, uh, understands scanners, knows how to have things separated into CD-ROMs and cut and paste and push and do and click and mouse and all of that. That's marvelous. But what happens when you have an author and an illustrator and you have to make a deal to separate the work and who has the right to oversee this? What new little clips and pieces will be put in for borders and so on? Who is going to be in charge? Is it the editor or the art director? Thank you. you For those of us who are still struggling with microphones, we can hardly believe what's to come. Technology's not here yet. Let me tell you, it's tough. And uh, it's very tough because I feel very responsible for whatever work goes, you know, whatever our work is. And 
the loss of control, which is very subtle, that I feel when I get stuff on discs is absolutely terrifying. I mean, I, I hear Mira, and she's saying I'm not controlling my book. Mira, I got a little disc from a very well-known, not a youngster, but a very, very intelligent, very creative, very interested in new things, artist that we've done a lot of very successful books with. And he got himself a computer and all the works about a year ago, and he's been teaching himself, and he's learned an enormous amount. And he makes more mistakes than you can imagine. And I get that disc, and I have to carefully read it in order to find his mistakes, which is, for me, an awful lot harder than taking a piece of paper. And when, I mean, I spent a day and a half, literally, finding mistakes, trying to figure out what he was trying to do, asking him to come in. We have a woman on staff who does nothing but computer helping. She is on, she's wonderful. She's a total expert and she's at our beck and call and we had her come up and we had, we couldn't read the discs and he used programs that don't exist anymore. They're old programs. Programs get updated all the time. It is. If you want to use it to its fullest extent, extremely difficult. However, it's also very exciting. It lets you do fabulous things. It saves an enormous amount of money. On the other hand, we are doing more work than we ever did before. We're doing work we used to send out. There was a lot of work that I would mark up and send out, and it would come back again. Now we are doing it. The the, one of the reasons the book prices have not skyrocketed further is because we are doing a lot of the work and we are saving per book thousands of dollars. It's coming off our back. It's not, not I mean, I was so gung-ho. I have, uh, what have I been, chastened or whatever. But it's going to come. You can't fight it. You can't fight it. We, our editorial department fought it. You can't fight it. It's there. So, no, I'm not saying you, I'm just saying. Advances are advances to the sale absolutely. The libraries have a budget, X number of dollars, not X number of books, X number of dollars. The prices go up, they buy fewer books. Simple arithmetic. Thank you. Uh, is we have, uh, I'm going to ask for two questions so that people can be up here and ready to speak into the microphone. Yes? And yes? We will, I will be happy to come back with it. We just had a few people who were really waiting. I thought they had answered it. But my question that I did answer, Mira, um, in case I was not clear, I agree with Mira 100% that the author should be consulted especially on the kinds of manuscripts that she's talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think that I addressed it in my opening statement, too, that I do feel very strongly that anything that has a nonfiction nature, whether it's in a, within a piece of fiction or straight nonfiction, absolutely has to be vetted. And the ideal person should be the author, because the author, of course, is the one who did the research in the first place. Mm -hmm. So yes, I agree with you. Thank you. I enjoyed your stories very much. 
about uh, who gets what rights and how to work with each other, artists and illustrators. But uh, there are those of us who are strange animals like myself out there who are artist illustrators and try to do both. But I need to ask a very simple, basic, technical question. If the programs are outdated by some of your, uh, the illustrators are using outdated programs, what is being used now? What's current, well, especially in adult books? Not just illustration, not just children's books, but what is the technology now? What are the the uh, forms being used for adult books? Thank you. Thank you. If if you're talking long manuscripts, uh, the the technology updates are not. I mean, they can almost anything can be read from one program to the other. It's in the, in the graphic areas that, that the changes are so enormously rapid. I found a fax on my desk this morning from Singapore where we are color separating a book. And he said, we, we have to fill out forms in which we tell him all the, uh, you know, what the material is that he has in the disc. And we had assumed it was uh, Quark 3.1. Quark is a program. Uh, unbeknownst to us, we had been updated to 3.3 because we were part of a large corporation. We get the latest immediately. And therefore, we had sent him Quark 3.3. And they couldn't, quote, read it. In other words, this disk went in and was rejected by, because this is, you're talking about something worldwide. You, you take a disk and it can be read. Pictures come out halfway across the world, the same thing. But you've got to have the same program, and these programs are continually updated, which uh, on, on the one hand is wonderful, and on the other hand, it, it creates all sorts of problems. I mean, I didn't know these things. I'm, I'm, we're all learning, every one of us. I'm not, I'm not. Just barely computer myself. What other than that? A step lower. What are you doing? What are you doing? Word processing or what? Yes. Yes. But what beyond line drawings is being done? Is there any color work being done in adult books? In adult books? Yes. We're releasing all our book jackets, all the book jackets on discs. There are no more mechanicals. Everything is on now. That means you have one piece of artwork. I'm not talking about doing the artwork on, a, on, you know, on the computer, which can be done, but you send out one piece of artwork and a disc, and the disc has on it all the type. The type may be in color. There may be color on the back. There may be ornaments and, I mean, any gradations, textures, you name it. That's all in these programs. Thank you. Yes? Yes, please. My name is Barbara Brenner, and um, I agree with almost everything that, that all of you have said, but I want to ask you a question, and, and it goes like this. Do you see any correlation between a harmonious book relationship and having an art director uh, make the decisions regarding the art? Um, it's been my sense that uh, at the times when and there's a, an inexperienced editor and no art director on board, it makes it much more difficult for 
um, for this uh, wedding to take place. And I wondered if you would comment on that. I would Thank agree you. with that, and I think that the reverse is also true. Um, publishing is a collaboration of all people, and you need experienced editors, experienced art directors, experienced production people. production people. You need experienced assistant editors on staff. Thank you. I'd, I'd just like to interject a question that was a, uh, sent in from many different authors that seem to have the same question of should authors have the right of approval of selection of an illustrator for their books since illustrators have the right to select which manuscripts they choose to illustrate? <laughs> well, if you hit for tax. Is that the point, or is what's best for the No, I think it, I... Um, if that's something an author feels strongly about, then I think it's something that they should address with the publisher before they sign the contract. It's really important. Oh, I, I can't give you a should or a should not answer, because sometimes it would be a good idea, and probably most of the times it wouldn't be. You go to a publisher, I would hope you pick a publisher because you admire the kind of books they publish. And if you've picked a publisher who's got a track record of experience, who does good work, you ought to be able to trust them to choose somebody who's uh, really top-notch for your book. Um, We don't really like to think about manuscripts going from illustrator to illustrator to illustrator. Um, and then finally, perhaps accepted by an illustrator, and then the author says that they would prefer not to have that particular illustrator. The editor and the art director together are tracking this process trying to find an illustrator mm -hmm. for the manuscript. Very, very hard. We're working as hard as we can to get somebody we think would do a good job for it. I must say, I have never experienced this problem because people have been very open to any ideas for illustrators or, um, or, or selection of it. So I think perhaps it started when, when I first started out in the business. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to ask. And since the Icon Mama books had an ethnic um, part of them, I was afraid of stereotyping and asked could I be involved in the art selection just or to have approval of different things to prevent stereotyping or different things. And Ferd Manjo, who was my first editor, and, and Raffner and Dorothy, everybody had no problem with having approval. And I don't know if you remember, it, it served a double purpose because we also picked up lots of errors that were things that happened, like, like the children's game buzz or telephone. When one person tells another person tells another person, and then it gets to the illustrator, sometimes the information can get garbled, as was the case in an illustration for Ike and Mama and the Block Wedding, which uh, there was a scene in there where the boys are playing Johnny on the Pump, a New York City game um, from long ago that has the, uh, it, it's sort of like leapfrog. And the artist, Charles Robinson, had the, all the uh, children leaning the wrong way. What, what 
solve the problem in that case was my taking a photo. I was asked to explain it again uh, at, because it had been explained to so many people along, along the way. I took a photograph of my daughter had, happened to have a, a waste paper basket the shape of a fire hydrant. I went out and got any kids I could find on the block. I lined them up. I put the little ones on top. I took a Polaroid. I sent it to Charlie. And it was corrected. And we were all so glad because that was the illustration that was selected by the New York City Public Libraries to be on the, on the cover of their uh, recommended books for children that year. And had it not been caught, it would have been very embarrassing for everybody. We called it Johnny Rides a Pony. Johnny Rides a Pony. Different names all <laughs> over the place. Everyone would have known it. So, so I think there is a, um, something to say for collaboration in the form of correction or uh, or just checking. Are there more questions from the audience? Then I'd like to, uh, I'd like to close. Our goal today was to create a forum for demystifying and relaxing what seems to many to be walls built up to separate authors and illustrators. I hope through our collaborative spirit and dialogue, we have moved towards that goal because author, illustrator, editor, and art director, or publisher, we all want the same thing, the best book possible. I thank our panelists for donating their time and expertise, and I thank our audience for their wonderful questions and attention. And I'm really glad that no police were necessary.